1 Corinthians 3 from verse 1 to 23. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that Christ's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray together. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we have delighted to be in fellowship again. Despite the activities of, of the week or the distractions that could have kept us away, we are here and we acknowledge the gift and presence of your Holy Spirit in our presence. We confess we have sinned against you by our thoughts and actions and one way we have done so is by accepting the validation of the culture around us by trusting in our own actions and our own strength, in our intellect, in our popularity, in our spirituality. Forgive us, Lord, and have mercy on us. 
and we thank you for your word today that assures us that we are yours. We pray for Alden that as he preaches your word that we will encounter Jesus and the full power of the gospel and that this power will transform our lives forever. I'd also like to pray for the conflict in Ukraine. I pray for a quick resolution that spares the lives of those who are in the thick of it. Forgive the aggressors and forgive those who are grieved. Forgive and strengthen those who are saved and reveal your soul, yourself to those who may not know you yet. This is a timely reminder that as long as we are on earth and until your return, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Mm. And so, Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And may your kingdom come on this earth, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Alden. You might be a little worried seeing me up here again because last time I preached, I preached for 75 minutes. I'm a newbie here, so forgive me. Um, but I won't be doing that again. In fact, I brought an assistant here, a little stopwatch, so that, that can keep me accountable as well. Um, but thank you all for your patience. I really am grateful to be able to preach to you again, in particular on this text, for us, especially right now, because I think this text is pretty timely for where our church is at, um, in particular because we just started um, talking about details of formulating the pastoral search committee for our lead pastor role. Uh, for those who aren't aware, we're in an interim period right now where Tommy is our interim pastor, and at the end of next summer, we're going to um, get a lead pastor who's going to serve in a more permanent capacity. Um, and so, that's why I'm particularly excited about this text, because number one, it talks about the role of a minister, and number two, it talks about the purpose of church in general. So I think that's really relevant for where we're at as we look for someone to lead our church. Um, so let's dig in. Um, we're going to go through the whole of chapter three uh, this morning. That's what Freca just read. Before we do that, I'm going to take a quick look at how chapter two ends just so we can see how the train of thought progresses. So Here's chapter 2, and it explains the difference um, between the way that someone without the Holy Spirit thinks, someone without God thinks, and the way that someone with the Holy Spirit, uh, someone with God, how they think. So chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 are on the screens to my right and left. It reads, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And so, I'm not going to dig into everything there, but the general tone of what I'm trying to say, the argument flows into is there's things that people who aren't Christians don't understand because they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have God. God is the Holy Spirit, indwells believers when they become believers. And Christians can understand things about God, especially how to get saved and how to know God and who God is because they have God himself helping them to do that. So you need God, the Holy Spirit, to understand God. And so that's how Paul launches into chapter 3, which I'll read now. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merrily human? And so the issue here is that the Corinthians are divided between each other in terms of who they're individually going to follow within their church. And God is saying that that behavior is as if they're only human, that is to say, without the Holy Spirit, as if they're not Christians is how they're behaving, is what it's saying here. And the proof of that is verse 3. There is jealousy and strife among you. They're jealous, they're angry, they're contentious because they prefer different Bible teachers. They prefer different pastors and they're arguing about it. 
All of whom, by the way, those pastors have the same fundamental beliefs. We know that because Paul affirms the ministry of Apollos a couple verses later in verse 6. Peter, that's Cephas, the guy that is talked about in verse 22, also talked about in chapter 1. They're arguing about those three guys. The two of them are mentioned in this paragraph. Peter will be mentioned in a moment. But all of them affirm the ministry of one another. Peter affirms the teachings of Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And so, these guys, I say that because these guys aren't trying to stir up individual followings for themselves. They're all on the same team. But despite the efforts of Paul, Apollos, and Peter, the Corinthians are still getting tied up in these matters of preference, and they're forming divisions based on those preferences. So now, with that in mind, let's take a look at how Paul addresses the Corinthians in light of this behavior. In some ways, he addresses them as if they're Christians, but in other ways, he addresses them as if they're not. So I'm going to read it again with that in mind. But I, brothers, okay, so that sounds like they're Christians, right? Brothers in Christ, family of Jesus, right? So it sounds like they're Christians. Could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Okay, so that sounds like they're not Christians. And then next phrase, as infants in Christ. Okay, so they're in Christ, so maybe they are Christians. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. Sounds like they're not Christians. Continues, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Okay, only human as if they don't have the spirit. And then verse 4, are you not being merrily human? So there's a mix here, right? And it's hard to nail with certainty if they're saved or not, if they've been secured by Jesus or not. And it's not Paul's point to draw a clear line here and say, if you're on this side, you're a Christian, you're okay. But if you're on this side, you've got to be careful, you're not a Christian right now. You know, There's plenty of texts that talk about security and assurance of salvation. But here, Paul wants to jolt them. He wants to let them know, hey guys, you're not acting like Christians. And because of that, you might not be Christians. So Paul isn't trying to give them security here. His address to them fits both non-believers and believers because their behavior makes it vague as to whether or not they are Christians. Specifically, that behavior is jealousy and strife that verse 3 talks about over their favorite pastor. And so an application of this is that it is unchristian to be jealous over your Bible teacher, or, and is unchristian for us to have strife, discord, or contention over your Bible teacher. I'm not sure if we struggle with this particular issue quite like the Corinthians did. Maybe we do. I'm not sure. Maybe we are tempted to fight about personal preferences in a pastor. A few weeks back, Tommy pointed out that five different people preached in the James sermon series. That was our most recent sermon series. And he highlighted the different strengths that each of the five of us preachers bring to the table. He explained that whether you prefer the preaching style or the communication gifts of Tommy, myself, Garrett, Jake, or Steve, the five of us are just fine. And it's not hugely important whether we're fine, good, or fantastic because the fact is, if we're faithful to preach the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and if we're faithful to preach the fact that he took the punishment upon himself that sinners like me and sinners like you deserve, and if we're faithful to preach the fact that he rose from the dead and that whoever believes in him will be with him forever, will love him, honor him, and enjoy him forever, and that all of that is the result of Jesus' death for our sake on the cross, then we've done our job as preachers, however eloquent we may be. And if we're faithful to explain the text truthfully, then we've done our job as preachers. Paul makes this point in chapter 1 that it's not about eloquent words. Chapter 1 verse 17 reads, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul is not primarily concerned about how gifted of a speaker he is or how organized his ministry curriculum is or how engaging his sermons are or how passionate of a speaker that he is. He's primarily concerned about two things, to preach the gospel and to be faithful to the word. Preaching the gospel, that's chapter 1 verse 17, I just read that verse. And then to preach the word is 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. Paul commissions his disciple Timothy, preach the word, right? And so those are two factors that make for faithful preaching. Now, I do need to say this doesn't mean there's no place for criticism, right? I mean, last month, I joked about it earlier, but I preached double the intended length that I was supposed to, and I was corrected for that. I'm a newbie. I don't totally know what I'm doing yet, and I appreciate the grace. But Tommy wasn't like, oh, Alden, don't worry about it, man. Yeah, you might have preached double, but whatever. You got the gospel. You're faithful to the text. It was perfect. That, that wasn't his feedback. Our church has a preference, a legitimate preference, right, that sermons don't last 75 minutes. 
And that makes sense. So even if a preacher does preach the gospel and is faithful to preach the word, there's still a place for criticism and a place for preference. So I don't hear, I, I hope you don't hear from me that we always need to fully embrace any pastor who just meets those two criteria. I mean, it could be that there's someone who does meet those criteria, but they're a total jerk. That person probably wouldn't make a great fit as our lead pastor, right? So point being, as we search for a lead pastor, yeah, let's talk about our preferences. We should do that. That's so important, and we should be really thoughtful about who we bring in to do this job. And we should talk and ask about hard questions of these candidates and scrutinize them because we care so much about each other, and we care so much about our congregation, and we want the absolute best for our congregation. And while we hold on to all of that, let's make sure that we're not fighting with one another over our favorite pastoral candidate as we start this search for a lead pastor. Let's make sure we don't form multiple different teams in Mercy House. Let's make sure to remember that no matter who we follow as our pastor at Mercy House, that that person simply serves to point us to Jesus, who is the real leader of our church. So let's be Christians. Let's not be jealous with strife. Paul wants to help the Corinthians grow out of their infancy in Christ and he refers to his first visit in Corinth when he first planted the church. In verse 2 it reads, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. So when he says he gave, when he says he gave them milk, that's the bare bones gospel that he gave them. Chapter 2 verse 2 gets at this. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this was the absolute focus and the center of all that Paul did on that visit to Corinth when he planted that church. And it seems like he seldom went beyond that fundamental truth of the gospel. And here, I think solid food refers to a deeper dive into the knowledge of God and perhaps a more holistic call to apply the more nitty-gritty details of God's word to our lives. Those of us who have been Christians for some time have experienced, you know, meeting God for the first time. We, we get converted and our lives are changed, right? We have this new knowledge of God. We're obeying him by taking the Bible and applying it to our lives. And then later we realize that, you know, we thought we had made it, like gone pretty far. Like, wow, I'm doing really well. Oh, wow, I actually have a lot, a long way to go before I make it to this standard, right? We learn that we have a longer way to go than we first thought. And there's a lot more that we can get out of the word than we first thought before, so I think that's what Paul's talking about here. So Paul wants to take them from being infants in Christ to being adults in Christ, to be more mature. But he says that they haven't made it to adulthood in verse 2. Even now you are not ready. They're not ready for adulthood because they're still holding on to that jealousy and that strife over their preferred pastor. So Paul corrects their thinking. And let's see how he encourages them into adulthood. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. I'll read them now. They'll be on the screen. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." And so Paul says about himself and Apollos right off the bat, look, we just serve God. We exist to point you guys to God, you Corinthians. And it's God who makes it all work anyway. He's the one really worth following. He's the one who's really building our ministries anyway. So when verse 5 says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He's saying, we're just servants of God. We are simply his servants. Don't say you follow us, say you follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1 says, this is Paul writing, continued in this book, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's saying Christ is who you follow. I'm just a servant to help you get there. And when it says, as the Lord assigned to each, Paul's saying that it's God who assigned the success of his ministry. The Lord assigned for me, Paul, to plant the church and for it to work. He assigned for Apollos to water it and for it to grow. But it's God who assigned the success of our ministries. It's not us who made that happen. Paul is making this all about God and not about himself. Paul is not to be followed in and of himself. God is to be followed in and of himself. In verse 6, Paul gives the distinct roles that he and Apollos had. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
This is a farming analogy with planting and with watering. So Paul says he planted. That means he planted the seed, right? He started the church. He planted the church. And then he went off to go plant another church after he went to Corinth for the first time. But Apollos, he stayed there, stayed there long term. He was, he was a resident there. He maintained the church. He helped it grow. He watered it. But God is the reason the church grew, he says. And that's just like farming. I mean, you can plant a seed in the ground, right? You can water it as prescribed. But if God doesn't make the plant grow, it simply won't grow. In the same way, the ministries of Paul and Apollos totally relied on God bringing their people to faith and then growing their church. Verse 7 continues, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul is saying, you guys who are making a big deal about me versus Apollos, you're totally focused on the wrong thing. We are nothing. God is everything. The entire purpose of our ministry is to encourage you to follow God, is what he's saying. We're nothing. Don't follow nothing. Follow God. So, my friends, whoever is our lead pastor by the end of next summer, I pray that they know that they are simply servants of God. And I also pray that they know that God causes the success of their ministry and that the success of their ministry doesn't depend on them or their effort. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And that phrase, are one, this really confronts their division because when one of them says, I follow Paul, the other, I follow Apollos, Paul's saying, well, guess what? We're one. One is indivisible. You can't divide us at all. We're on one team. And so for us, this means every servant of God, that is every Christian in this room, outside of this room, every Christian in history, is on one team serving one purpose, and that purpose is to point to Christ together as one, indivisibly. The second half of verse 8 says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're going to dig a lot into the idea of wages and rewards in verses 10 through 15. But for now, let it suffice to say, that although we're on one team serving one purpose, we still each individually get rewarded for our personal labor. Notice that the word is according to our labor. It's not about how great or small our task is. It's not about how great or small our influence is. We get rewarded for our effort toward God. So more to come about what that wage and reward is and how it works. But for now, we're all on one team that serves to point to Jesus, and each of us gets rewarded for the individual labor that we exercise while on this one team on earth. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. As we labor, we labor with God. We are fellow workers. That's a joy. That's a really cool thought, the fact that the creator of the universe is like our co-worker, you know, like we like share a cubicle with him. Like, that's awesome. You know, that's, I think that's epic. But at the same time, we belong to him. We're God's fellow workers, right? So as we labor, we should remember that we belong to God. We do it with him, but we belong to him. He is greater than we are. When it says God's field, that harkens back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, where, he, where Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And so that's the kind of call to discipleship and the call to go make disciples and evangelize to people, introduce people to Jesus, right? And so that field, that, that harvest is a building and it's God's church. And all of it belongs to God. The workers belong to God. The field belongs to God. The building belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And the you here, the word you is pl a plural you. Maybe you could translate y'all, perhaps, right? Like, th that's us, the church. We belong to God cumulatively, and we make up this field, this building. So the church does not belong to, for example, the pastor. It doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to the deacons or the staff or the families or the children or the college students or the youth group. It doesn't belong to those who give the most money to the church. It doesn't belong to those who have attended church the longest here. It doesn't belong to those who have worked the hardest to keep the doors open, etc. It belongs to God. The church does not belong to any of us. It belongs to God. So whoever's going to be our lead pastor, they need to recognize that this church belongs to Jesus and not themselves. Now, I don't ultimately care if I get to be a part of that ministry team. 
I'm not asking to leave. I, I love being here. I love Mercy House. I love doing what I'm doing here. But I don't ultimately care if I get the privilege of doing that. And I don't ultimately care if Tommy's part of that team either, as great of a job as I think he'd do at being our lead pastor. What I totally care about, though, and what all of us should totally care about, is that whoever leads this charge knows that this is not their church, but it's God's church. And that they know that their most important job is to point us to Jesus and his crucifixion for us. Verses 10 through 15, this is a chunk, but I'll read it here. It'll be on the screens. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so verse 10 opens right up with Paul attributing all of his ministry success to God. He says, according to the grace given to me. So all the building that he did, all the planting, all, all of that was a gift from God. It was a grace from God. Paul isn't taking credit for it. Again, this is glory to God and not Paul. That's the pattern here. And next, Paul explains that he laid the foundation and Apollos is building on that foundation. And then in verse 11, Paul explains that that foundation that he laid was Jesus Christ. And there's a warning here, though, in verse 10. It says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. And that warning is there because if we don't build our church on Jesus, our church is going to collapse. A bad foundation makes for a pretty bad building. It's going to collapse after some time. And notice the language here in verse 10. It says, let each one. This is not just a call for church leaders to think rightly about themselves or only a call for the congregation to think rightly about who our leader is going to be. This is a personal call for each individual Christian to take care. Verse 12 starts by talking about how we as individuals do take care and how we do build on that foundation. It talks about these building materials of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And those things represent the works that we do in life. We know that that's what they represent because the verse opens up with, if anyone builds on the foundation with right, these various building materials. So these are the works that we do. And whether those works are good works that honor Christ or whether those are bad works that dishonor Him, whether, whether we sin, we're always doing something. We're never doing nothing, you know? So God is calling each of us to invest in work that lasts into eternity. There's two sets of materials listed here in verse 12. Materials that do not perish with fire and then materials that do perish with fire. The gold, the silver, the precious stones, those do not perish with fire. You put those in fire, if anything, they get refined, but they remain. They don't combust, they don't deteriorate, they don't go away. Wood, hay, and straw, on the other hand, those do perish with fire. They go away in the fire, they get destroyed. Verse 13 says, the day will disclose it. And that's talking about the day that Jesus returns to gather his people. So this text is saying it's on that day that he, will, he, Jesus, will reward us for the good works that we did here on earth. And we will not be rewarded for the bad works that we've done. So we get rewarded for the gold, the silver, the precious stones. But we don't get rewarded for the wood, the hay, and the straw that gets burned up. And since verse 15 mentions that the person themselves is saved, that tells us they're a Christian, right? So that burning can't be damnation, because if we're saved, we're saved. We don't get damned. That's the, what saved means. We're saved from hell. We don't go there once we're saved, right? So this is not talking about damnation, but it is talking about a loss of reward in heaven. So in a positive sense, we will get specific rewards in heaven for the good things that we've done on earth to glorify Jesus. But in a negative sense, we will not get rewarded for the sinful things that we've done. So I think a question that naturally pops up when we talk about this is, well, what are these rewards, right? And in chapter 4 of this book, verse 5, that's the very next chapter, Paul answers that question. I know I'm skipping ahead of our sermon text, but I think it's important just to clarify this point. So the context of chapter 4, verse 5 is talking about when the Lord comes. That's what we're talking about in verse 13. The day, will disclose it, the day of Jesus' return. And so when the Lord comes, 4, 5 says, 
then each one will receive his praise from God. ESV reads commendation. Most English translations use the word praise. They mean the exact same thing, so it doesn't make much of a difference. But each one will receive his praise from God. Our reward in heaven is personal praise to us from God himself. Like, that's a big deal. Like, we, God, who created the world, praises us for the good that we do. That's a, re- that's a cool reward. That's eternal. So, to be clear, our works don't accomplish our salvation. We don't get to heaven because we do good works. Jesus' work on the cross accomplishes our salvation. But even though we're not saved by our works, our works still mean something. They're still significant. Our works, our labor, in other words, merit us rewards once we're in heaven. If the idea of earning rewards gives you any qualms, we can go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, which says it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even the good works we do, we only do because God did them in us anyway, right? So it's, we're actually getting rewarded for the good works that God himself worked in us to do. That's really loving of God. That God is rewarding us for something he did, that's loving. So again, ultimately, it's all about God getting the glory. We're not the focus here. But still, God, as glorious and as deserving of praise as he is, he still chooses to give us both salvation and rewards in the form of praise. This is something that should motivate us to work for God. Like, this is a biblical motivator to seek things that are eternal and to get praise from God. That's something to look forward to and something that should motivate us in our daily lives. This is an opportunity to let Jesus' love motivate us in everything that we do. So no matter how big or small of a life decision we're talking about, or no matter how significant or insignificant an action might seem to be on our end, no matter what kind of job we work, no matter what kind of family we have, everything in our lives is an opportunity to love Jesus and invest in an eternal reward. Colossians chapter 3 verse 7 gets at this. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A summary of that is, do everything for God, right? And so as we talked about in verse 8, it's, it's not about how effective we are. It's not about how influential we are. It's not about how famous we are or how significant we are, what kind of impact we have. We get rewarded for our personal labor toward God, regardless of our impact or influence. And that includes every small detail of our lives. Now, at the same time, this is not a call to become anxious or disappointed when we realize that we're falling way short and we have a long way to go before we really live this out. Everyone in this room for the remainder of our lives will learn more and more ways that we fall short of God's glory and God's perfect standard. But God still does invite us to accept grace from Him when we fail. That's the whole point of why Jesus died. And he gives us an opportunity to invest in eternal things with him despite our brokenness. And we get to do that by working heartily toward him and everything that we do. So, let's build a life that lasts into the next life with Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says in Matthew chapter 6, it'll be on the screen here, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. How sweet is that, that right now we get to impact our eternity with Jesus. Like, this really, like, matters. Our lives matter. Our lives are significant. They are of eternal significance. Let's let's invest in that. A brief side note here, sometimes people will use verses 10 through 15 here to say that purgatory is in the Bible. The Catholic Church believes that once believers die, before they go to heaven, first they go to this place called purgatory where they get burned and they suffer until they're purified enough to make it into heaven. Now, nobody in leadership at Mercy House believes this. I'm just telling you what they believe. But I just want to point out in this text that it's the believer's work and not the believer himself who's burned. Whereas the doctrine of purgatory says the believer himself is burned until they are personally purified enough to enter into heaven. But that's not what's going on in this text. So this text can't be used to justify the doctrine of purgatory because the believer himself is not being burned. The believer's work 
is being burned. Our labors get burned. If anyone wants to talk more about that, I'd love to talk after service, but I did want to mention that. So that's my side note. So, so far, here we are. First, we know that divisions over preferences in a pastor is a bad thing. We know that pastors exist to point us to God. We know that the church belongs to God. And we know that we're saved by Christ's work on the cross. And we also know that we get rewards in heaven for the works that we do toward Jesus. And so now we arrive at verses 16 and 17, which are up on the screen here. They read, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So, like before, there was another verse where this was true for. In Greek, each word, each case of the word you in these two verses is plural. Perhaps a translation could be y'all, right? It's not the most formal. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread these verses with the word all in parentheses after the word you so that we can get the idea of what's going on here. And I have that, if you, like Alden translation, if you will, up on the screens here too. So let me reread that. Do you all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. This is a massive statement. God himself dwells here among us simply because we are a church. Like God's in our midst right now. How is that? I mean, well, Alden, look, we got a rickety building. The toilets overflowed last week. I couldn't use the bathroom. The chairs are uncomfortable. You often can't, I can't hear you because I have microphone problems coming in this way. This place doesn't really feel super holy, right? Like our steeple is like half painted with a piece of frayed rope dangling from the top, right? So what gives? The point I'm trying to make is that we, God's people, make up the church. We consist of the church, or the church rather consists of us. There's plenty of churches that don't have a building. Is God not there? God is there. He is. It's like silly, right? The argument here is that local churches are basically temples of the living God. Because he dwells with us and makes us holy, that's why. A functional building doesn't make us a church. A permanent lead pastor does not make us a church. Having God dwell here in our collective midst as a body of believers, that is what makes us a church. And that's a big deal. That's a, a cosmic deal. God himself dwelling somewhere, like that's not a little deal. In the Old Testament, when Solomon finished building the temple, God came down to dwell in that temple. And, I mean, it talks about how like immaculate it was, all the materials, it was super like exquisite design, and it took a while to build, it was grand, it was glorious. Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, describes God himself coming down to dwell in that temple. Fire comes down from heaven. The glory of God fills the temple. And it's so intense that the priests who are supposed to work in there, they're like, oh, we can't even go in there. That's how big of a deal it is that God himself dwells with us. In this text, God compares that experience of Solomon's temple to the, our experience of being a part of a church. We may not constantly have a visceral experience like Solomon had but that's okay. It's a matter of fact that God dwells here in our midst, our midst, you all. God is here with the same power that he had when he first entered Solomon's temple. And that's not unique to us. Mercy House isn't a uniquely awesome church, kind of like the preacher. Like, we're, just, we're fine, right? So I'm not saying this to be, to be unique or to be cheesy and say, we've got God on our side, you know? Like, this is just true for any real church with real believers in it. Every church body of believers is a mini temple housing God's glory. And I think this text helps us appreciate what a grand thing it is simply to be a church. And I think especially for us right now, I think it's really important for us to understand what a church is, especially before we go finding someone to lead it. And it's because church is such a glorious thing that verse 17 reads, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. Now, we just read verse 15, which says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. And so, there is a real sense of loss when our bad works get burned up, even though we are saved. And that's the destruction being described here. So, although we ourselves as Christians are saved and secured, 
If we're found causing divisions in church, as far as our rewards in heaven go, we will experience, as one commentator puts it, terrible ruin and eternal loss as it relates to our rewards. Church is a big deal to God. Let's not destroy it. In the case of the Corinthians, that destruction was because of division over preferred pastors. This verse really hits home for me because several years ago, I, I was first getting exposed to really detailed and like thorough Bible teaching, and it, it sparked an interest for me in theology and asking a lot of questions about the Bible and trying to answer them, and this is a really good process. I would recommend it, right? But in the meanwhile, and this is the part I wouldn't recommend, I started like noticing when people would say things that weren't totally true or that I personally disagreed with, and whether it was a nitty-gritty detail of something someone say or a bigger matter of doctrine in my mind, I got to this place where I felt like I couldn't, in good conscience, be involved in a ministry that I had any problem with, right? And so I avoided involvement in campus ministry, and it's interesting that we are doing covenant renewal just this week, because several years ago, I mean, I had been a committed member of Mercy House for a while, I had gone to meet Mercy House class, been going for several years, had done covenant renewals before, but this particular covenant renewal, several years back, I remained seated, I abstained. And I did that because of particulars about Mercy House that I felt like I couldn't support. So I just said, oh, I, I can't be a part of this at all. That was my attitude. And I don't really want to talk about what those particulars were. That really is not my point. And granted, I didn't form my own little Alden cult off to the side. I, I don't know that anybody would have joined. But <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Anyway, but the Corinthians did that, right? They were doing that. But my point here is that these verses still have some application to my situation then, I think. I think, I really do think I lost my reward for that behavior. Now, I didn't go as far as to destroy the church like this verse talks about, because I didn't form my own cult. But I was asked to serve in various ways and invited to help build the church, and I abstained. I did not build the church. And if that seed of division in my heart had grown any greater, the next step would have been for me to go form my own group. And I'm glad that by God's grace, I, I didn't get there. But if I had, I would have been responsible for what the Corinthians were responsible for, destroying the church, as this verse says. So, if parts of that story are relatable to you, I just want to personally invite you to reconsider. I've already lost my reward for the behavior that I've done. I'm, I'm sad about that. Now, I'm not filled with regret. Uh, like, I know God's forgiven me, and I'm going to make the most of the rest of my life. So here I go, right? But I do want to encourage you, take a hold of the reward that's available to you. Do good works for the Lord and build something that lasts eternally. And maybe there's somebody here today, I don't know, who's sitting in the same seat as me from several years ago where I abstained from the covenant renewal. Maybe you're doing that for whatever reason. And may, I'm also not saying that there's no good reason to abstain from the covenant renewal. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. There may be good reasons for that. But if you're in a place like I was several years ago, Maybe you have some problem with how Mercy House does things. Climb aboard. Come help us move forward. Come talk to us about how to do this. Come talk to us about doctrine and how church works. It's really important to think rightly about God and rightly about church. That's really important. That honors God to have dialogue like that. And when we have theological disagreements or church disagreements about stuff, as long as we have the gospel right, these should be reasons to press deeper into relationship so that we can help one another understand God better together rather than back away from one another. So the way to make godly change happen, if that's something you want to do, is not to abstain from involvement. It's just going to keep cruising, you know? The way to make godly change happen in any church is by getting involved and helping us build. So if my past experience is relatable to you, I really do want to invite you to come build this church with me and with us. Because, with verse 17, God's temple is holy, and we are that temple. Now, specifically, the divisions over their favorite Bible teachers was what threatened to destroy their church. And let us be warned about the temptation, perhaps, to divide over something like the upcoming pastoral search committee. Let's resolve together you all, we all together, to build this church and build lives that last into eternity, individually and as a holy temple of God together. The last paragraph of our sermon text is verses 18 through 23, which I'll read now. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so verses 18 and 19 start out with this, again, comparison between wisdom of the world and wisdom that comes from God. And in light of what Paul's talking about here specifically, I think that worldly wisdom refers to our temptation to depend on some gift of a preacher, whether it's their speaking gifts or their ability to lead, whatever, in the preacher rather than Jesus himself. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that means if I fear God, meaning if I love Jesus, then that is the very beginning of wisdom in God's eyes. Any experience I have, any expertise I have about something, any gifts that I might have, any practical knowledge that I might have, if I don't know God, then verse 19 tells me the wisdom of this world is folly with God. I'm a fool without God. Let's not live our lives foolishly, and let's not build this church foolishly. Verses 19 and 20 says, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. This is a warning to people who are not Christians right here. Verse 19 says, look, if you continue on the path that you're going, you will get caught. And verse 20 is saying, the wisdom you have, if you're not a Christian, ultimately it is futile. Because on the last day when Jesus comes back, or maybe before then, on the day that you die, the wisdom that you have will not get you anywhere with God. You'll be judged for the wrong that you've done. And all of us have done wrong. Christian or not, we've all sinned. The question, though, that determines if we're a Christian or not is this. Do I actually fear God? Do you actually fear God? If you do, then build your life on Him, on the foundation. That is verse 11, what verse 11 describes Jesus as our foundation. Build your life on Him. And that means, if you're not a Christian, to respond to him today by giving him your life. To no longer live for yourself, but to live for him. Because you're so grateful to him for taking the punishment that you and I both deserve. But if you won't live for him, if, if you're not a Christian, you're like, no, I'm, I'm not doing it. I would ask you the same question Jeremiah asked the Israelites when they refused to turn to God. That'll be on the screen here, Jeremiah 5.31. He asks, but what will you do when the end comes? The answer, verse 19 tells us, you'll get caught. That's what you'll do. That's what will happen when the end comes. And you'll be caught in hell forever. So turn now to God in faith and receive that forgiveness of your sins that I'm talking about. And trust Jesus, who is your foundation, or at least offers to be your foundation, who died to invite you to enjoy Him forever. He didn't just die to save us from hell, but also to bring us into a relationship with him forever. A marriage, the Bible talks about it. Take him up on that. Do that today. You may not be able to later. He might come back. You might die. Take him up on that. Verse 21 says, let no one boast in men. Why? Well, because everything we have is ours. Yes, that's true. But it's given to us from God. It's backwards to boast in people rather than God because God gives us the people. If God gave us these people, we should really be boasting in the giver of the people, not the people, you know? But it doesn't end there. Look at the rest of verse 22. He hasn't just given us people, like good pastors, right? He's given us the world. He's given us life. He's given us death. He's given us the present. He's given us the future. He's given us everything. But then verse 23 says, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Everything has been given to us, yes, but we belong to Jesus. In what way do we belong to him? Well, like I was just talking about, he gave his life for us. That's how we belong to him. So and from, not just from saving us from hell, but saving us to himself forever in this perfect relationship with him. He died to give us that. And we're so grateful to Jesus for doing that for us that we're compelled to invest in eternal things for him. That's in what sense we are his because we live for him now, no longer ourselves. So yes, everything belongs to us for our good. That's true. 
And now we live our lives that Jesus has given us, preparing for our eternal life with Jesus. And when we take communion every Sunday, we take that to remember how Jesus died to make us his. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 26 say this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Practically the way that we take communion during COVID right now is with the plastic cups that are underneath your seat. There's bread and juice in there. And if you're a Christian, communion is a space to remember the Lord's death and how his death made you his. He broke himself so that we would not be broken. So we'd be spared from destruction and being spared from being broken. He did that for us. That's what we remember when we take communion. That's how his death made us his. And if you're not a Christian, you should not take communion right now. I mean, right after that communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11, God says you should only take communion if you've examined yourself. Like if you've examined whether or not you believe in him or not, whether or not you're a Christian. And maybe today, you, for the first time, you do believe. In that case, I want to invite you, come join us, come take communion, and for the first time, remember Jesus' death for your sake. But if you're not a Christian this morning, I, I, I hope that you do examine yourself instead of taking communion. And consider the question that Jeremiah asks you. But what will you do when the end comes? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we get to be a church. Thank you that you dwell here among us simply because we're yours. Thank you that that is so glorious. Help us believe that that's so glorious. Give us wisdom as we've started our, the beginnings of getting the ball rolling of this pastoral search, Lord. Give us wisdom and help us to look back to this text, especially to guide us and govern how we ought to do that, Lord. We need wisdom for how to do that. And Lord, show us what preferences we should have, Lord. Um, and Lord, help us to invest in eternal things where moth and rust don't destroy. Help us to use the nitty-gritty details of our lives for the purposes of heaven with you, which you want with us, Lord. Let us look forward to the good works that we do here for you not being burned and look forward to praise that we get from you, God, because of the good that you worked in us to do. So let us look forward to that, God. Help us to do that well. Thank you that we get to take communion now and remember why we belong to you. In your name we pray, amen.